The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we speak to Hazel Carby about her history of the British Empire as told through the story of her own family. My father actually, he lived in fear with the Jamaican passport. There was a lot of negative publicity. And he, I found letters that he wrote to the Home Office saying if he actually attends the graduation of his grandson in the United States, is he going to be let back in with the Jamaican passport? And he wanted to die a British citizen. He felt he was always a British citizen. And we talked to Amelia Gentleman whose new book, The Windrush Betrayal, explores the heartbreaking stories that emerged from her investigation of British immigration policy, chillingly known as the hostile environment. Around lunchtime on the 24th of October 2017, staff at the Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre in Bedfordshire told 61-year-old Paulette Wilson to gather her belongings and get ready to be taken to another holding centre near Heathrow Airport, where she was due to be placed on a plane and sent back to Jamaica. After half a century in Britain, she had been classified as an illegal immigrant. But first, Monday night saw the announcement of 2019's Booker Prize winner, or winners. Claire, there's two winners. Yeah, this is a bit of a shock, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit of <laughs> it's drama. The, it's the third time that there have been two winners of this prize. The last time was in um, 1992. And the winners are Margaret Atwood with The Testaments and Bernadine Evaristo with Girl, Woman, Other. And we're very pleased on this podcast that Bernadine's got a look in because we've we backed her fairly, fairly, fairly strongly early on. Yes, and she's also the first Black British author ever to win the prize, which is Black British woman author, Black British, and also Black first British Black at all. woman um, to win it. Um, if we're sort of it's so it's so wonderful as well because this novel is about somebody who's been around in artistic circles and been an outsider for for the whole of her life. Somebody pretty much Bernadine's age and she's in her 50s and um, she's suddenly come in and been given a play at the National Theatre <laughs> so in a way the journey of the book and Bernadine's journey has mirrored the journey of Amma who's the theatre director who, who and the collecting point for all these um, various characters who have who, who are very different and are linked by this one thing which is this premiere of a play directed by Amma at the National Theatre <laughs> she, in which various people say she's a sellout other people say she's she's arrived yeah. um, but, but this is it um, and Margaret Atwood um, The Testaments is, has definitely been the event of this publishing se- season hasn't yeah. it? Yeah no, there hasn't really been a bigger book and it was the last book to come out of the entire shortlist and uh, it has sold 86% of, of the shortlist sales So, <laughs> so, so we've, we've been trying to puzzle out what happened because this is very rare and it there were signs in the press meeting that the that the director of the prize was not pleased yes. and it and it was the announcement was half an hour late coming out as yes. well so, so i think they were pretty locked what do you think happened well it just seems a bit as soon as they said oh we're going to take an extra half hour before we come out and tell you who's won it's like oh okay then there's a drama you know it's usually pretty prompt when it's unanimous um but i wasn't expecting two winners i was just sort of expecting them to grump it out until they found one but it's an interesting compromise but it's not necessarily something that's going to please everyone I wonder how it feels as an author in here when two books win. Well, I think if you're Bernadine, you'd be pretty damn <laughs> pleased to be up on a podium with Margaret Atwood. And Margaret, you know, I don't know. She, she's she's won a lot of things. She's she's at an, a stage in her life yes. when I, probably she will be very gracious about it. Yes. I'm sure. Well, I mean, she's yeah, she's been nominated six times, so it's sort of she's probably 
it's a bit old hat to her now. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting um, going back because we've had um, justice uh, judges' testimonies from the years that they uh, judged the prize. They sort of come out a few years later and they give you all the gossip about what actually went down in the judging room. Um, and looking back at the um, the years where there have been two winners, uh, so it was 1992 and in 1974. Um, and in 1974, Ion, Ion Truen uh, came out and he was talking about how they decided on doing two instead of uh, compromising on one. He said, with, three, with only three judges, they only had three judges that year, with only three judges it seemed important to me that we did not compromise or produce a 2-1 verdict. Might we split the prize between Stanley Middleton and Nadine Gordimer? Martin Goff said he had, knew of no reason why not, so Martin Goff was the prize administrator. Uh, we were vindicated when the by the conservationist being selected this year for the best of the Booker shortlist, um, which was uh, a few years ago in 2008. Um, it, for was, that. it was held up as a particularly good Booker winner. Um, it's a bit sad because Stanley Middleton's uh, holiday has disappeared. Who reads Stanley Middleton <laughs> these days? And then the, the 1992 one was also interesting. I mean, both of them are, are very uh, uh, writers who are read, but the English patient on Dutchie was again one of the choice of, for the decade, wasn't it? That's it? right, yeah. Um, it ended up winning the Booker of Bookers um, uh, last year um, when they did the 50-year uh, celebration for the prize. Um, so clearly that, that one has, has held up. Um, and then uh, Barry Unsworth's Sacred Hunger, which I have to admit I have not read, um, and perhaps hasn't had the lasting powers as, as on Dutch. It's such a brutal business, isn't it? It's it? <laughs> absolutely brutal. But the lovely thing about this pairing is you've got, you know... You, Okay, you couldn't say you've got somebody at the beginning of their career and somebody at the end of their <laughs> career. Yes. But you've got people uh, with very different standings. And, you know, somebody different. With, for Bernadine, this opens up. It's like an arrival of a whole population. I mean, Bernadine ran the, um, um, was into black theatre, sort of a leading movement in black theatre in the 1980s. I know this because she's a sort of direct contemporary of mine. She, but she's not only, so she not only brings a community in but she also um, writes in this hybrid form she writes verse novels although you when you read it there's it's so fluid you wouldn't notice it was a verse novel but they're brilliant novels of voice I suppose this is what it enables her to do um, so she's she's an outsider on two fronts aesthetic or formal yes. and and also in terms of insofar as one can say somebody of of of, of color is still they are you know outsiders still after all these years yes and i guess with pairing with that with was the sort of establishment she's the the big starry name on this list perhaps even more well, so than salman rushdie salman rushdie yes um, i mean we haven't talked about the other ones uh, and let's let's just put a word in for the ones that that didn't get on yes um, i mean i feel a bit mournful for lucy ellman to be honest i did kind of want that as a big challenging scary winner that well, you know, when you read it, actually, isn't that challenging or scary, as we said on last week's episode? Ducks Newburyport, that is. Yeah, and, Ducks and, Newburyport. Yeah, and I spent the weekend with it, and I it it grew on me. <laughs> <laughs> it grows to, and grows it? and grows. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that it, but the interesting thing that emerged when I was rereading over the weekend is, in some ways, I do think it was a stronger long list than it was a short list. Yes. And uh, this sometimes happens. Yeah. It does sometimes happen that some very good books get sort of almost... Because of balancing, a sense of having to balance a shortlist, very good books get booted out at yes. that last stage. I mean, I, I personally loved Lanny, yes, uh, me Max too. Porter's Lanny. I mean, maybe it's 
better qualified to win one of the, the Goldsmiths Prize or one of those prizes that is more sort of uh, about experimental stuff. Yes. But also you loved Deborah Levy, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. I really loved the Deborah Levy. And I think in some ways perhaps that is also quite suited to something a little bit more experimental. But it would have been nice for it to have the recognition. I think that's sort of one thing that the prize does give you is a certain amount of recognition of of what you were doing when you wrote that book and I think it was a really really daring and really well carried out book and I would say that perhaps it deserved a spot slightly more than a couple of the books on the shortlist. But you know both of these books are in their different way and they're both very readable maybe Mm. that's one of the things about it you know we had we had Milkman last year which everybody's thinks is a masterpiece it's not the most easily readable book we've had Paul Beattie um, we've had Marlon James we've had a lot of stonkers yes. that actually don't really and d- don't George hit Saunders that. Lincoln in the Bardo George which Saunders. on the face of it was challenging but I think when people got the hang of it I mean he came on this podcast and said that most people tend to give up around page 30 but then think about it and go back so this this prize this year has been you know one of its distinctions has been it's like I, I remember I think we said right at the beginning it's like the prize of a, a, a prize list put together by someone with a marquee to fill yes <laughs> they're all sort of big hitters in different ways and, and uh, I, the, the, Peter Florence Peter Florence who is the director of, of the Hay Festival and, and it's a sort of very strong personality and I do think you saw his his, his stamp particularly on the on the long list but these you know but but he has delivered they have delivered the judges collectively have delivered two very readable books mm. which and and, I, and Margaret Atwood is already proven it's massive it's the it's it's sold something like 179,000 copies already, uh, and it was the last book to come out on the shortlist, and it accounted for 86% of the sales. Um, and then Bernadine was actually the uh, one that sold the least. And yeah, sold and but so Bernadine is, is waiting. All these people waiting to discover this novel, yeah. and I, I think they won't be disappointed. I yeah. think they will. People will enjoy this. Yeah. So, what do the verdict? Thumbs up, thumbs it's down, good. thumbs middle. Uh, yeah, I just I, think it's a bit of a cheat. Yeah, it's a little two. bit. <laughs> I kind of wish they'd maybe stayed in there half an hour and half an hour more and come out at postpone, six. Postpone the prize for a day. Or yeah. postpone it for a year like the Nobel's just done. Yeah. yeah we got two Nobel's and two Bookers this week. It's, it's too many prizes. It's too much work for us, Sean. <laughs> I need a nap. Now to the discussion you had with Hazel Carby and The Guardian journalist Amelia Gentleman. Hazel Carby's new book, Imperial Intimacies, is a history of the British Empire told through the lens of her own family story. Hazel was born to a Jamaican father and Welsh mother and explores how her place in her home, her neighbourhood and in the country of her birth was always in doubt. Guardian journalist Amelia Gentleman's investigation into the Windrush scandal set the political agenda in 2018, bringing down a Home Secretary. And what started as a newspaper article turned into a book, The Windrush Betrayal, after Amelia was contacted by more and more people whose lives had been upturned by the hostile environment. When Hazel and Amelia joined Claire in the studio, Amelia began by reading from the beginning of the Windrush betrayal. How do you pack for a one-way journey back to a country you left when you were 11 and had not visited for 50 years? Around lunchtime on the 24th of October 2017, staff at the Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre in Bedfordshire told 61-year-old Paulette Wilson to gather her belongings and get ready to be taken to another holding centre near Heathrow Airport, where she was due to be placed on a plane and sent back to Jamaica. After half a century in Britain, she had been classified as an illegal immigrant and was scheduled for imminent removal. Packing did not take long. 
The clothes she had been wearing when she was arrested a week earlier had been confiscated, leaving her with nothing she could call her own. She put the detention centre-issued toothbrush and night clothes into a large plastic laundry bag, along with a towel, some soap and some underwear which had been provided by the guards. She looked at the grey prison tracksuit she had been given and wondered how she would manage in Jamaica, with no appropriate clothes and no money. Staff led her to an upstairs room to wait for a van to transfer her to Heathrow. For a moment, Paulette, a cook who had worked in the House of Commons canteen, was quiet, dazed by her own terror. Then she asked if she could call her daughter, Natalie. She dialed the number, waited for Natalie to pick up, and began to scream. They're taking me away. You have to stop them. That is the opening of Amelia Gentleman's brand new book, The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment. And also with us in the studio, as well as Amelia, is Hazel Carby, whose new book, Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands, gives the background to this story and frames it in a very personal way. So I want to start, Hazel, with saying you haven't read that passage before. What were your feelings hearing that passage? The first thing that came to my mind was for how long my father lived in fear, actually. Um, He had a British passport. He joined the RAF in 19... He landed in England in 1943. But after the end of the war and after being discharged, like many people in Britain, he didn't bother to renew his British passport until he actually wanted to travel abroad. And so in the 70s, when he wanted to visit his siblings in the United States... He gathered all his documentation, including his RAF records and all his employment and his, you know, his British passport that he had that was no longer valid and went to Luna House for his appointment. So these books, are, although they, they deal in a way with the same sort of area, they choose different ways to do it in. Amelia, your yes. book is a sort of, it's a recap and an expansion of the reportage you've been doing for the last two years around what we erroneously, you point out, in some ways called the Windrush generation. Just tell us exactly why that isn't, that is an inaccurate way of describing them. So the book is a much more detailed plunge into what caused the huge political scandal of 2018, when, if you remember, we saw the Home Secretary have to resign over the Home Office's treatment of thousands of people who were here entirely legally, but who had been wrongly classified as illegal immigrants. And these were people who, as a result of being wrongly classified, got caught up in the hostile environment and found that they were made homeless or were sacked from their jobs because they didn't have the right documentation or they weren't able to travel or get the health care that they were entitled to. And in some cases, like the woman Paulette, were threatened with uh, deportation and some people were, in fact, removed from the country and taken back to countries that they'd been born in but hadn't lived in for decades. It became known as the Windrush scandal because it involved a lot of people who'd come from the Caribbean and it was the 70th anniversary of the arrival of Empire Windrush around the same time that the scandal was breaking um, in 2018. So it really helped, I suppose, from a headline writing perspective to be able to categorise this group of people as the Windrush generation. Because before that, I was really struggling with explaining quickly and the introductions to articles were a bit clunky because I'd have to say this is an immigration 
problem that involves people who were born in the Commonwealth but had lived in the UK for decades who are now at retirement age facing problems with their immigration status. It's quite a big subhead. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work as a headline. But when you start referring to the Windrush generation, people immediately understand who you're talking about. Did you coin that? that phrase. A campaigner called Patrick Vernon coined the phrase and it was incredibly helpful in making, I suppose, politicians gravitate and understand what it was and also our readers. But it's a a slight misnomer because, of course, the actual Windrush generation is, I suppose, Hazel, more the era of your father, people who came on on the Windrush or or ships in 1948, whereas the people that I'm writing about are a slightly later generation of arrivals, people who came in the 1950s and 1960s entirely legally because there was free movement from from the Commonwealth, but who in later life, because they didn't have documentation, were wrongly classified by the Home Office as illegal immigrants with catastrophic consequences. And the hostility that Amelia describes is exactly what my father faced in that office in Croydon because the person declared that all his documents must be forgeries. She actually swept them all onto the floor and he had to sort of, you know, pick them up. He was totally humiliated and he went from that office to the Jamaican embassy and got a Jamaican passport so because they fa- refused to let him have one. So so your father actually voluntarily took back Jamaican nationality, though he didn't want to. He did not want to. He was never issued with any official documentation that he was being refused a passport. This was entirely just a daily practice of giving one of them a hard time, basically, and sort of thinking, oh, well, he won't be back. And it was, it was this daily humiliation, this struggle to be British. And my father actually, he lived in fear with the Jamaican passport. There was a lot of negative publicity. And he, I found letters that he wrote to the Home Office saying if he actually attends the graduation of his grandson in the United States, is he going to be let back in with the Jamaican passport? And he wanted to die a British citizen. He felt he was always a British citizen. He was born a British citizen. And he actually struggled and got his British citizenship returned after years of fighting for it uh, under the 1981 Act. But this sort of daily hostility and humiliation and fear predates the current moment. This is what people lived with, even if they had fought for this country during World War II. So your father married a Welsh woman and they came to live in England. And the result of that was you. Yes, in my father was actually shortly at that point the based in, uh, in, in Lincolnshire, in RAF Waddington, and uh, then they moved to London, but they couldn't find anywhere together to live because people would not rent housing to a mixed-race couple. And it was actually worse. I was born in Devon. My mother went to Devon to a relative, uh, and I was born down there. But they had the hardest time. They actually managed to scrape up a deposit for a bomb-damaged house, which actually severely bomb-damaged house. And when it was mended, repaired by the council, they rented rooms upstairs. But the hostility they faced, and not just being a black-and-white couple, but then having what was called then, of course, a half-caste child, was extraordinary. And my mother was vilified, you know, as a white woman who was actually in this relationship with a, with a black man. The form that you choose for this book is is very interesting because it's a in a way a dual biography of your two families one in one in Jamaica and one in England but they're not 
predictable. I mean, I, I, I said to you when we when we met downstairs, I felt I was ambushed by this book. <laughs> Kept well, I on hope in a good way. In totally in a good <laughs> way. For example, you trace your family, Carl's family, back to the Carby from whom your name comes, who is, of course, a white plantation owner who gave his slaves the name Carby. But he wasn't a grand plantation no, owner. He, he was, was a soldier who'd sort of grubbed his way up. And that's what I wanted to do, is to tell the ordinary stories of these imperial entanglements. He was the son of a carpenter who grew up in a village in Colby, in Lincolnshire. But it was one of the earliest villages and areas of the country to be enclosed. For the militia and for the Revolutionary War, there were all these young men who had very little to do or ways to finance themselves and went in to the militia and then into the British Army. So he was then shipped to the West Indies. Like hundreds of thousands of others. So it's this, the ordinariness of the way in which people get scooped up into these uh, situations and then become, as he did, as he learnt in Jamaica, was to how to be a white man that could act with impunity and control enslaved people and purchase them. You go back to the uh, slave register in 1817, 1816, in which you find that most of the slaves don't have second names, but two do. Yes. And the ones who do are Carby. So you were assuming that they were his children? Yes, more than an assumption. Yes, yes. I found a lot of sort of documentation other than the slave register. The slave register I found because of my father's stories of being taken back to Swift River by his grandmother every summer. And he said everybody there was called Carby. So I followed that route. But I also found Lily Carby's will. And in there he was naming the children that he'd had on various plantations, actually. Now you say, and and fortunately for you, empire is accounting, continuous and rigorous accounting. But that's only part of the story that, you you know, you can go back and find slave registers from the 19th century. But there's also... But they are accounts. They are these ledgers, these extraordinary ledgers. And they just list, you know, Negro, 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 Creole, 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 and just these names that are not those enslaved people's names. Those are the names that were given. And Lily Carby actually gave all his enslaved people the names of his family in that village in Colby in Lincolnshire. We know of the existence, but what we don't know is about the personal stories at all. And this is something that is very resonant in in the reporting you've been doing around Windrush, Amelia, isn't it? That the humanity of these people is utterly unknown to the system. And that is why, for example, Sylvester Marshall turning up at hospital for cancer treatment finds he's not going to be treated unless he pays £54,000 when he's lived in the country most of his adult life. Yes, I mean, I think in the reporting of this issue that we did at The Guardian, it was incredibly important to try and explain exactly who these people were who were being so badly mistreated by the Home Office because we are confronted by so many different strands of Home Office intransigence and cruelty and it can become kind of quite overwhelming unless you really bring to the fore who the individuals affected are. So quite early on, we made a decision to try and photograph everybody who was happy to be photographed, because of course, it's quite a big deal to put your life on display like that. But really to explain that these are our neighbours, they're people who 
we would never question their right to be here. And, and by telling in detail their lives, how they've come here, how, in fact, most of their lives after the kind of very, very profound racial tensions of the 60s and 70s actually had progressed and flourished and were going in positive directions until the beginning of the hostile environment in in 2012 made things suddenly so impossibly complicated. But yes, absolutely telling personal stories was at the core, I think, to both engaging our readers and eventually in shaming politicians into action quite belatedly, but finally there was action. And after the break, we'll have more from Amelia Gentleman and Hazel Carby. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Let's rejoin Claire's conversation with Hazel Carby and Amelia Gentleman. Claire asked Hazel to read a passage from her book, Imperial Intimacies, addressing what she calls the question. When I was a a newly minted assistant professor of English, I asked Professor Michael Thelwell, author of The Harder They Come, if he would be willing to come and talk to my students about his novel, which I was teaching in a course on Caribbean literature. I had composed and mailed a letter of invitation, which covered all of the basic information, and I said that I would follow it with a phone call. I practiced what I was going to say and also imagined various questions that he might raise about the course, the students and the novel. And I had these notes in front of me on my office desk when I picked up the phone. I felt nervous at the prospect of talking to such a prominent Jamaican author, academic and activist. But I was totally unprepared for what Professor Thelwell wanted to discuss. My surname. He had clearly been mulling it over because as soon as I introduced myself, he asked, Now how come? A young lady with the Jamaican name of Carby speaks with an English accent. I was born in England, I stammered. And your father is? I gave my father's name and a brief account of how he grew up in Kingston, volunteered for the RAF in 1942 and ended up marrying and settling in England. But it was clear from the deep sigh that issued from the other end of the line that what I said was a woefully insufficient response to, and your father is? The actual question was a question I didn't even realise I was being asked. Exercising patience with this obviously slow-witted young British woman, the professor eventually had to spell it out. Are you from the black carbies or the white carbies? I didn't hesitate to reply with utter conviction. The black carbies. Now, I would repeat that response if I was asked the same question again more than three decades later. However, I would now add, in Jamaica, it is never quite as simple as that. I mean, isn't that in a way the underpinning of both these stories? It's never quite as simple as that. And if you go down bureaucratic lines, you miss out on the, the whole point of people and societies and communities and history. Yes, because, I mean, for example, the ledgers that we were talking about, the slave registers, those clerks who were recording it didn't actually imagine that they were recording people. They were just entities. They were lists of names. They were, you know, ledgers to count bodies. But the important issue that we all forget is that these are ordinary lives. And the question is, how can we restore them? 
So I actually take the lives of both sides of these families in Britain and in Jamaica and use them as skeletons to tell this wider story of colonialism and imperialism and reinsert their lives right into the centre of it. They're ordinary, everyday lives. Now, I mentioned the Carby story, the fact that Carby wasn't a grandee. He was a a sort of man coming up from the bottom. Son of a carpenter and British Army Um, infantry person. But you look back to the parallels, and at one point you have um, the two matriarchs, the one of whom in England ended up, had nine children and was a sempstress and ended up in the workhouse. In the Bristol workhouse. She died there. So again, it's not just a simple story of empire and some people being privileged. And I actually think a lot about questions of education. On both sides, there was real ambition for education. My father couldn't afford to go to the good schools in Jamaica and he had to leave after the elementary level and support his family. And in Bristol, they also were extremely poor. I also look at health. Health is really interesting in terms of sort of equalities. On the maternal side, many people up to my grandmother, actually they died of tuberculosis. So did my great-grandmother in Jamaica, although there was a lot of shame about it. But by 1911, the building blocks of the National Health Service were being put in place in Britain, especially in relation to TB. But the colonial office that was running... Jamaica as a crown colony didn't do anything like paying any attention to health and the health of Jamaicans. So there are real parallels in terms of education and poverty and illness, but there are also profound inequalities. The ways in which you tell these stories have to address the fact that people don't necessarily tell the truth, not because they're lying, but because the truth can be too painful or they just don't know it. Presumably in your case, Amelia, it must have been quite difficult to prise some of these stories out of people. Well, I think what was really remarkable was that none of the people who'd been affected by um, these Home Office problems understood what the problem was. So not the individuals, but also, um, to begin with, not their MPs or the charities or or lawyers that they sought help from. It was a complete mystery. So in a way, it wasn't a question of getting to the truth. It was just a question of trying to sit with people and and hear their stories and gradually build up a, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, I became very expert in immigration law and home office acronyms and home office policy over the decades until over the months. I mean, I was working on it probably for six months before politically it really took off. But over that period, there was a gradual understanding that really at the roots of this were two things, partly the 2012 hostile environment um, put in place by the coalition government, but also a kind of decades-long failure of politicians to understand the implications of empire and the and the decisions made by British politicians going back to 1948. So I went into this thinking I was going to be writing about the Home Office, but actually learned a tremendous amount about empire and the ongoing long shadows cast by it. Particularly, I I found that when I went last summer to Jamaica and visited some of the people who had been refused re-entry, perhaps as your father, worried that he might be. One of the people I met in central Jamaica last summer was a man called Ivan Anglin, who had arrived in Britain in the 50s, had been involved in building a lot of the tower blocks in in East London. He's a carpenter, talked a lot about the work that he did in kind of rebuilding 
war-torn London. And he talked really powerfully about his childhood in in a very um, remote rural village in Jamaica where he had to sing God Save the King and had to sing later God Save the Queen and sometimes Rule Britannia with the lines, Britons must never be slaves. And and he said at the time it didn't occur to him how weird that was. It Something only occurred later in life. During the war, he was asked by his teacher in this tiny school with no electricity and no running water all the pupils had to ask their parents if they could get some money to donate to the teacher, which would then be sent to England for the war effort. And at the kind of the absurdity of, of asking these families in a very poor part of Jamaica to pull together money, which they did, to be sent back to Britain to contribute for squadron bomber planes. But it was all part of this idea of, of yes. Britain being the mother country, which... Somehow, And that's why when my parents met in 1943, they weren't total strangers to each other. They'd had childhoods, you know, in starched uniforms and waving flags every Empire Day. The curriculum in schools uh, that my father taught was entirely about Britain and about teaching you to be British. They didn't teach you anything about Jamaica. So, you know, he was actually, he was a great fan of English poetry, for example. So... To be imagining that these people are somehow other to you is is not understanding actually how empire worked on a daily level. But you also get a sense from Carl's history about the what he he was desperate to escape. He yes. he arrived with knuckles broken because he'd been beaten so hand, hard that yes. his left hand had been mutilated. Well, that was un-British. I mean, you actually taught British character, you know, by st- by stopping children by whacking them with a ruler. Whacking, yeah, actually, yes, with a stick. He'd been whacked by who? By the teachers. By, by the, the teachers. teachers right? Yes, who were actually trying to teach him. He had beautiful English round hand actually but he was left-handed naturally and they broke every single knuckle on his left hand because that was un-British. Now you see this is one of the disquisitions it's a book of many disquisitions <laughs> it has disquisitions on bananas and disquisitions on various sort of arcane aspects of the slave trade. One of the disquisitions is about English round hand and the role of English round hand in, in empire building. Talk, just explain a little bit about that. Well, I was, I was struck by how beautiful the writing was in slave ledgers, the ledgers that actually recorded what slaves were on plantations in terms of numbers and just first names, but also the ledgers that were kept by captains, you know, on slave ships. They were in this beautiful, beautiful English round hand. And although I couldn't actually get much information about the enslaved from these ledgers, it taught me a lot about English character and what was thought to be important. So the clerks didn't think that they they were actually dealing with people, but they were scrupulous about their writing being absolutely perfect. And I was struck by the not only the incongruity of that and the deep, deep inhumanity in there, but it gave me another way to think about, so what exactly is this English character then? What is this British character when it actually has this inhumanity at its root? What one of the things that I asked almost everybody who I interviewed was whether or not they felt British, having had this um, horrific experience at the hands of the Home Office. And I realised actually that in many ways quite an insensitive question and some people responded quite badly and said well of course I'm of British course, yes. um, but some people did did say that their desire to be British had fluctuated in, in the face of what had happened to them 
And the whole ongoing, very, very painful experience of being so wrongly treated by their hostile environment caused really, really uncomfortable existential questions for everyone affected. Yes, I know. I remember my my father had sort of crises like that. He was a very, you know, he was he was a sort of suit and tie person. He was very proud of that but he also swallowed an awful lot of these sort of like daily insults but he worked for Westminster City Council for more than 30 years and one of the things he did at one point was work on the census and he actually went into the rooms in Notting Hill and saw how you know black migrants were being treated and how they had to live that made a crack you know in his sort of sense of Britishness at one point and then when I later as an adult was talking to him about you know racism in the British education system and what I had experienced all the things we actually couldn't talk about as when I was a child but we talked about as an adult he then began to think you know had he made a mistake in staying in Britain after the war but he stayed he believed in the British education system he thought it was the best in the world and that's what he wanted you know to give his children so it was it was that sort of sense of absolutely believing in being British and wanting to die by returning to his British citizenship with these with these sort of cracks that would open up every now and then. He did manage to get it. He got it back. He actually got it back and he died with a... Yes. Now, you talk about the things that we couldn't talk about and that is absolutely a thread that runs through your book. And in a way, it fractures the way you write in the way that it fractures the identity of the society. So you write about yourself as a small girl in the third person. I do. Because that third person doesn't have the understanding and knowledge you have but there's also a lot of would it haves in it would it have happened so you take your grandmother Beatrice by the hand and walk through what she might have experienced in terms of the rhetoric around immigration in the early 20th century. I was very interested in actually how for example trying to understand how on the maternal side generations came to understand that they were white. I mean, what imperialism meant to them, how they imagined themselves as colonial citizens. And my grandmother, Beatrice, uh, living in, in Bristol, poor as she was, was actually surrounded by a culture of cigarette cards, you know, daily sort of festoons of uh, spectacles of colonialism and imperialism in the shops, on the biscuit tins, on the chocolates and stuff that would be given in school, even though they were very poor. And there were these lantern slideshows I discovered um, about Jamaica being shown all over the country and in Bristol. And I imagine what she would have learned if she had gone there. The appeal of the lantern slideshow was, you know, Jamaica is very good for your health. It was that first glimmer of trying to open up Jamaica to tourism, taking tourists one way and bringing bananas in the next. And I imagine I sit in this lantern slideshow with her. I found the script of it. I found all the images. And I was thinking a lot about what would she have been thinking, having escaped, you know, come out to the lantern slideshow from a home that was You know, her younger sister at 13 was dying of tuberculosis and she had to nurse her. What would she in that moment have learnt about Jamaica and Jamaicans? And what she would have learnt is that poor as she was, she owned Jamaica and Jamaicans. That was the message of the Lantern Slideshow in 1905. And these were taught in schools too. 
So we have here, we have a sort of quite a tormented history and we have quite a tormented present in your book, Amelia. Is there a happy side to this? Is that, Can we take hope from these books? Well, I wrote this book partly as a love letter to journalism because I think as a reporter, I mean, I spent a long time writing about things that I think are wrong or government mistakes or, or, or things that really need fixing. And most of the time, nothing happens. But in this instance, I do come away feeling really positive in a lot of ways because there is real concrete change as a result of, of all of the articles that The Guardian published. So we can say that 6,000 people who didn't previously have documentation now do have documentation. So that means that they're not worried about the Home Office coming and knocking on their door in the night. The government has promised an enormous compensation programme that could see as much as £300 million being paid out to those affected. It's true, the money isn't yet flowing, but it's underway. Two Home Secretaries have promised reform of the immigration system. We haven't seen it yet, but they have at least acknowledged change needs to happen. So I'm slightly torn in that I'm kind of thinking, you know, hurry up and let's let's actually see all of that change. But I, I do want to be positive because I think it is a real example of journalism highlighting that there's a a problem, a hidden problem, exposing it and action coming as a result. And I think those moments don't often happen. So you have to kind of try and feel upbeat about them. The journalism is extraordinarily important. You get this sort of sense, there's a glimmer, a door is opened here and it can't be closed down. You know, if we didn't have any hope, then I wouldn't have even bothered to to write the book, well, anyway, if you like. You're, you are the happy ending, Hazel, aren't you, to your family, in that you're a professor at Yale, you're writing, you've written books about black masculinity, yes. and you've now written this. But I also see that this is part of a wider movement too, the decolonising the curriculum movement, the way in which you know students, for example, are no longer just going to accept these silences in their university education. But in general, I think... There is, as you say, this door that it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, to close down. And uh, and people are demanding more of these stories. The dedicatees of these books. Amelia, who's who's your dedicatee? Um, so Sarah O'Connor is one of the women who I interviewed last year. She arrived at the age of four, worked in Britain for decades, paid taxes, married someone British and then found in 2016 that she wasn't able to get a job because she had somehow been classified as an illegal immigrant despite 50 years in the UK. She was one of the most vocal campaigners on the issue when it became known and spoke very powerfully in Parliament about it and unfortunately she died last September. She was unwell and so I've dedicated it to her, Sarah O'Connor. And and Hazel, for Ian, Nicholas, April, Nicole and Chloe. Ian is my brother, Nicholas is my son. And April and Chloe are two younger cousins, they actually call me aunt, um, who look up to me a lot, but it's also to give them their history too, because it involves their families. Uh, I'm very close to them and I also want to dedicate it to this younger generation and I want this to be for the future. Hazel Carby and Amelia Gentleman. Hazel's book Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands is published by Verso 
Amelia's The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment is published by Guardian Faber. And you can watch a new Guardian documentary following Paulette Wilson as she travels to Jamaica, a country she had not visited since she left at the age of 10. You can find it at theguardian.com forward slash documentaries. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at the history of the book itself and reflecting on the most ancient long poem known to exist, Gilgamesh. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our brand new producer, Esther Apoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.